Welcome to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Brayman, guiding business owners to the exit they deserve. Ross is a financial advisor who knows that business owners work too hard on growing and caring for their businesses not to leave it on their terms. Each week he interviews a different experienced business owner, expert, and other professionals ready to teach you effective, satisfying business exit strategies that will let you exit your business your way. Don't wait until it's too late. Start thinking exit now. Here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Brannan. Today we have Jim Awesome. Jim Awesome is a shareholder in the Cleveland law firm of Caffich, Familio, and Durkin, as well as a member of its board of directors and co-chair of the business practice group. Jim's practice is focused on succession planning, mergers and acquisitions, as well as estates and trust. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ross. So, Jim, tell me, I heard you speak, and we uh, we struck up a conversation. I heard you speak at a conference, and I was really intrigued with what you were talking about from something as simple as entity structure and how there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of mistakes made by business owners when they set up their entity. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think people think in terms of what is simple. And what is simple when you begin doing a business is a sole proprietorship. The problem is that's simple because it's the worst structure because it exposes your personal assets to your creditor's claims. You can get the simplicity of the tax structure out of a sole proprietorship by simply putting it into a limited liability company as a single member. And then you have the protection of a limited liability company. If you're not familiar with that, it's virtually identical, but better than a corporation in the sense that most statutes, and I think Florida does it, certainly Ohio and Delaware do, they limit a creditor's remedies to a charging order. A charging order is like a mortgage. If somebody takes a judgment against you, they get to lien your interest in the LLC, but they don't get to control your interest in the LLC. So if money comes out of the LLC, they can grab that, but otherwise it stays in there and it's not subject to the creditor's claims. So explain to our audience why an LLC is better than a corporation, because some of them are going to say, most everyone realizes they shouldn't be a C corporation. That's for large, major corporations. But they're like, well, why can't I be an S corporation? Well, you can. And an S corporation has certain advantages to it. And that is that as distributions are made from an S corporation in which you are active, those distributions are not subject to the Medicare tax. And they're not subject because you're active to the passive income tax. So you can save yourself about 3% if you own the company. But a limited liability company has the same protective function that a corporation does, but it's better. Because a corporation, if I take a judgment against you, Ross, and you own 100% of the corporation, whether it be an S or a C, I can actually take your shares and I can become the shareholder. Uh In a limited liability company... If I take a judgment against your limited liability company, the only thing I can get is a charging order. And I can't take over the control of your limited liability company. So I'm kind of waiting for you to make distributions to yourself. But the key element is a limited liability company, which gives you better asset protection, can elect to be treated as an S corporation for tax purposes. So what you have to understand is you're separating your tax treatment from your asset protection treatment. Asset protection treatment is better with a limited liability company. Tax treatment, dependent on your facts, may be better being taxed as an S-corporation. So LLC ends up being taxed as though it were a corporation, 
but it is not for local law, Florida purposes, Ohio purposes, Colorado purposes, but for tax purposes, it's an S corporation. So that, that brings me two questions in my mind. Number one, I've heard, you know, I am familiar with the charging order. I've heard, Oh, go get an LLC in Wyoming. They have the best charging order statutes and LLC in Wyoming is bulletproof. You can't do anything with that. I'm assuming that's not true, but speak to that. Cause I'm sure you've heard the same uh, thing before. Wyoming, Nevada, Ohio, Delaware, they all pretty much have the same kind of asset protection, limiting the creditor's ability to reach those assets to a charging order. That's it. It's in the statute. It's very limiting. A lot of people like Nevada, like Wyoming, places like that, because they don't think they have an income tax. Yeah, no, they, neither one of those do have an income tax. Yeah, and, and whereas Delaware, Ohio, et cetera, have income taxes. So they think that if they can derive as much of their activity to that jurisdiction, they can avoid having to pay state income taxes on it. That, depending on what you're doing, might be a challenge. But I think people are picking those jurisdictions more for income taxes than they are for asset protection. But if uh, if Ross lives in Florida, sets up a Wyoming LLC, has never been to Wyoming, does all his business in Florida – does that Wyoming LLC really do anything or should I just go ahead and have a Florida LLC? Well, you got a unique in your facts. I don't think it matters because Florida does not, does not have an income tax. But let's go ahead and say it's Ohio, which has an income tax. And I set up a Wyoming LLC. But all my clients or majority of my clients are Ohio based or Florida based someplace other than Wyoming. I have no employees in Wyoming. I have no office in Wyoming except a, a statutory agent, and I don't have sales in Wyoming. And I don't think Wyoming is doing a damn thing for me. I, I have Ohio source income, and I'm going to pay Ohio source tax on that income. Okay. Now, let's bring up another issue that I've asked you about before. In Florida, a single member LLC has been pierced for creditor purposes. And so the common knowledge, common idea, the common thought is that you have to have a multi-member LLC in Florida for credit protection. Now, you spoke to that at the conference that we talked about, and I, I believe Colorado is another state where this has happened as well. Could you speak to that and talk to whether the legitimacy, illegitimacy of that, or if you were in Colorado or Florida, would you do a single-member LLC or a dual-member LLC? Well, in both those instances, they were federal bankruptcy cases. And the idea being, does, does federal federal law Trump state law. And in that, those particular bankruptcy judges said it does. And the only reason to have a, a asset protection in an LLC is to protect the other members of the LLC from creditors of the defaulting member. So if you're going to, if, if you are risk averse, the only way to theoretically get around that case law in Florida and in Denver is to give one tenth of 1% of your LLC to someone else, that creates a multi-member LLC. Now that that judge's determination that the only reason we can't reach your ownership is to protect another member, we've got another member. And for tax purposes, the only disadvantage is you can't be a disregarded entity if you have one other member. Even if that one other member only owns one-tenth of one percent, they are still, so you now have two members, so you have to be taxed as either an S corporation or as a partnership. So if you, disadvantage. if you were living in Florida and you were setting up, you know, Jim's business LLC, would you be concerned about that? Uh, those two cases or would you do a single member? 
I, I would go ahead and go ahead and give my wife, my adult son, somebody like that, a one-tenth interest in my LLC and have it taxed as an escort. Get, okay. I get all the protection I want and the tax treatment I prefer. Okay. So and, and you're filing you're filing an extra tax return. You know, you find an S corporation tax return every year. That's that's not a significant expense or complication. Right. So so you do exit planning for family businesses. You also do a lot of asset protection work as well. What are some of the biggest challenges? Also, a a more uh, rude way of saying it, mistakes that family businesses have or make as they grow and they're getting close to exiting or just during that process? Well, I, I think one of the things they do is they don't put any restrictions in terms of a close corporation agreement that's for a corporation or an operator agreement for an LLC that says what happens if there's going to be an involuntary transfer. And a classic involuntary transfer is when one of your kids, the next generation to whom you have transferred stock is all of a sudden going through a divorce. And now all of a sudden a bankruptcy, or excuse me, a domestic relations judge says, um, transfer half the company to your ex-wife or your ex-husband. And the family says, oh, we don't want that to happen. Well, you want to have an agreement that says if there's going to be an involuntary transfer, then either the entity or the surviving members have the right to retrieve that before it is transferred. Now, you can debate at what price and under what terms and conditions they they need to retrieve that. In other words, it can't be at $10 for an asset that's worth a million dollars. There's got to be some legitimacy to it. But you want to make sure that that ownership and control of that family business can't leave the family if you don't want it to. And you have to then put that into, into an agreement to make sure that doesn't happen. Now, you're saying operator's agreement. Does it fall under a buy-sell, or do you need operator and buy-sell, or just buy-sell, or just operator agreement? Well, for a corporation, you can put it in, in Ohio, and in most states, it's now called a close corporation agreement, which both addresses those restrictions, the involuntary transfer, and also functions as a buy-sell agreement that says if somebody dies or somebody becomes disabled, either the entity or the other shareholders are going to buy. So you can put it all into one agreement. Okay. If the, if the entity is a limited liability company, you could squeeze it all into an operating agreement that okay. functions the same way a buy-sell agreement functions in a corporation. Yeah, I've seen lots of buy-sells that, um, quite frankly, need to be upgraded, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen lots of buy-sell. Well, let's put it this way. I've seen very few buy-sells that are actually funded. And, yes. and so... <laughs> It's like a, it's like a it's like an ornament on the Christmas tree. It's just sitting there looking pretty, but not very functional. Exactly. Yeah. Cer- certainly, a the easiest thing to fund is someone's death. If the shareholder is insurable, okay, you you can insure the shareholder's death. And and the thing that I tell families when we're doing succession planning is, you've made a transfer of your life's work to your children, and your children are going to hopefully run the business successfully. And that'll give them the capacity to continue to pay your salary, all the other things to, quote, pay you for the family business. But what if your kids get sick? Okay? So it, it behooves the, the transferor, the parents, to ensure their kids so that if their kids get sick, they're not exposed. If their kids can't run the business, they won't get their value. So that will take care of their issue. And, and I also suggest in a lot of cases where you don't want the surviving spouse to be dependent upon their children or even grandchildren to run a bit as successfully. So maybe you go ahead and still ensure the, the founder or the senior generation. So upon their death, 
the surviving spouse is taken care of, and whether the business is successful or unsuccessful, that risk is off the table for the surviving spouse. That's an easy solution. Go ahead and buy insurance. On. And hopefully one of those people is insurable at a reasonable rate. And then the other, the other thing we use is if there's three kids, only one's in the business, and the business is being transferred at a bargain, the two kids who are not in the business are saying, the business is worth $10 million, Dad, and you're transferring it to our brother for $5 million. We're losing out on $5 million of inheritance. Give them $5 million of insurance or, or the portfolio or the IRA or the corporate real estate. Don't give them ownership in a business that they're not going to be active in because then you're just lighting a fuse and the son or the daughter who's running the business at some point is going to have to take their siblings out. And that can be brutal. Yeah, it's very important to do good estate equalization planning because it can get muddy really, really quick. So what do you see as one of the things that really optimizes value when it comes to uh, selling a business? Well, I think we try to sometimes, if you're selling it to the family. Yeah, because that's two different animals, third party and family, two different animals. If you're selling it to the family, like you know, you, you have three options. You can die with it, owning the family business. Bad result, because where do you get bargains at estate sales? You can transfer to the kids, to key employees, or a combination of that, which is usually the best function because the key employees are going to help keep that thing in place. And if you find out that transferring it to the kids or the key employees doesn't work for lots of reasons, then sell it, sell it. So we go through an analysis that says, what does the senior generation require from the family business going forward? Do they need a lot of money or they packed a lot of money away already? Do they need health insurance or are they old enough now where they're getting Medicare? What do they need from the business? Do a budget, do an analysis. And the second what is what can the business afford? If the business doesn't survive and thrive, they'll never generate enough money to pay the senior generation. And then the third aspect of, of that analysis is what's the business worth vis-a-vis what's fair? If the business is worth 10, you're transferred for five. Is that fair to the next generation? Or the one that you're transferred to for five came into the business was worth $2 million. And he helped or she helped create and should get some sweat equity credit for having created that value. So that's that's how you kind of back into a family enterprise. Otherwise, you go ahead and I would suggest you get an appraisal from an expert, see what you can sell your business for, and then talk to an investment banker who knows what the private equity guys are doing because they're bidding up all of these companies, paying big multiples. Now, in my experience, I've seen most people have a majority of their uh, net worth in the business. Correct. Uh, and so that means the sale... It's so important. But like you said, obviously, you go sell to private equity, you're at the highest multiple. But if you want to pass it on to your kids or you want to take care of your employees, that's a lower price. Generally, it is. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Have you you walked through some of those challenges? Oh, yeah. We do it all the time because what happens is we want to keep it viable. So the parents, the senior generation are taking significantly less money then they could probably get the private equity in an open market transaction, but they're willing to do that. But one of the ways we also benchmark that is we go ahead and say, if the kids buy out dad and within three years, the kids flip the company to a private equity group for significantly more than they paid dad, dad gets to participate on a declining basis. First year, he gets 100% of what he would have gotten. Second year, 66%. Third year, 33%. Sometimes we've done it longer. The idea being, if you're making a bargain transaction because you want to keep it in the family, if the family then flips it, you want to participate in that that bonanza. 
Oh, uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's very shrewd. It's very wise. It's very fair. Yeah. So what do you see as the biggest challenges that prevent business from businesses from being sold? Like they have, everyone wants to sell it, but it's like, you got to get this in place before we go down that road. And they're just, for whatever reasons, not willing to, or not able to go on to do that. Well, it's, there's no April 15th. So there's no deadline that says you got to do this by a certain date. And quite often they get to be in their sixties or seventies. They say, all right, Let's put the plan in place. Well, it's it's a process. It's not a plan. Yeah, it doesn't happen by Friday. <laughs> let me let me give you a quick story. We were representing a company in Northeast Ohio that was in the business of repairing appliances, and there was one in Michigan, one in Chicago, one in Pennsylvania, and we were doing a merger of these. The idea being to eliminate all the redundancies because. You know, the appliance repair business was shrinking because people were buying new ones. They weren't repairing old ones. And so I'm interviewing the son uh, in terms of what role do you think you ought to play in the merged entity? The son says, none. I hate this business. I've always hated this business. I just wish dad would sell it. I sat down with the father and said, that's what your, your son just told me. He said, really? I hate it, too. I already kept it for him. Oh, my God. So sometimes, you know, the family thinks it's a family business. We have to hold on to it. Even even though whatever generation really doesn't like it anymore. And we sometimes the financial planner, you have their ear and ask the right questions. They'll tell you things they won't tell their parents. And maybe the best option is, you know what, let's sell it because we're keeping it for the sake of keeping it because we don't know what else to do. Well, selling is not a bad option. Yeah, I mean, and, and when you're in a declining industry like that, sell it now is probably the most you're ever going to get. Sooner you get out, the better. Yeah. So tell us a story of a transaction that just went bad. I just had one, unfortunately. It was, um, we had a written contract, everything in place, financing in place was $52 million. And the trouble is they had a concentration of customers. Yeah, it's a challenge. and And COVID precipitated this. They had a great 2021 because of COVID. But that major customer, like an awful lot of people did because of supply chain disruption, ordered too much inventory. So we're we're 60 days before closing, and we get a letter from that major customer that says, you know, for planning purposes, we will not be doing any further ordering in the in the third and the fourth quarter. Now, of course, that that is one of those events that has a substantial economic effect on the business, which you as the seller need to disclose to the buyer or you're going to have the whole transaction unravel and you're going to get lots of losses. The buyer has to go ahead and make that disclosure to their bank. And the bank comes back and says, unless you can get that customer to guarantee certain level of, of, you know, orders through the end of the year, we're going to have to pull the financing. That's exactly what happened. And so, so the buyer actually still wanted to go through with it. The buyer still wanted to go through if they could get the major customer to guarantee major customer wouldn't guarantee what major customer wouldn't guarantee the buyers did not have sufficient personal financing to do it. They needed the bank and the bank wouldn't do it. So let, let's go back a second ago. We we're talking about, you know, the planning and it we're, we're joking. You know, our, our mutual friend, John Brown loves to tell a story of his construction. People who called him on Tuesday said they wanted to sell a business by Friday. And that's, <laughs> and, and that's how he ended up in the exit planning business. Uh, but typically in my experience to do it, I mean, Right now, it's tough because I mean, you could say you want to you want to you want to sell the business, and you could start planning down the road, and then private equity shows up and offers you more money than you ever thought, and deals done in, in 108 days. 
uh, th- that's kind of the world we're living in. Uh, we'll see how we'll see if that la- how long that lasts. But typically speaking, if you're a business owner, you need to be thinking three to five years in advance, exploring all options. Correct? Yes, I, I think that is the best approach because if nothing else. If you're familiar with the concept of normalizing your earnings, cleaning up your balance sheet, making things, you know, not run personal expenses through the business, take the kids off the payroll so you get the earnings up because that's what they're going to pay for, legitimate earnings. And those things you're running through are driving your earnings down. You need some time to put all of that together. Okay. And you need to get your manuals in place. You need to perhaps upgrade your, your equipment, do certain things. And when you sell your house, you clean up the dishes, you cut the lawn, you paint the house, you do certain things. When you want to sell your business, you should do certain things to make it as attractive as possible. And one thing is to go ahead, if you're having compilations, have a reviewed statement. If you're pushing things through the through the family business, stop doing that. Clean it up, make it look good. Yeah, I mean, it's for tax purposes and for personal purposes, it's great to run all your expenses through your business. It's But you have to clean that up because a buyer doesn't want to look at that because your your books aren't aren't really legitimate until that's gone. Yeah, well, they they, they test the quote quality of earnings. Okay, and you've got a whole bunch of stuff there running through there. You're going to drive your quality down. You don't want to be there. You want to if you want to sell it, start working on it at least two years before, if possible. If yeah. possible. So as we wind down here, what advice would you give to a business owner? And to anyone, because if you're 35 years old and own your business, you're going to exit your business. And as Jim said earlier, dying at the desk is not the ideal way to do it. So you want to sell your business. But so whether you're 35, 45, 55 or 65, you're a business owner. What advice would you give them? I teach strategic planning and strategic planning is taught almost exclusively to closely held business owners. And we tell them this is working on your business, not in your business. The day to day is working in your business. We're going to teach you how to work on your business. And the concept being run your business as though you're going to sell it. Don't run your business as though you're going to pass it on to your kids. You can pass it on to your kids because the more successful it is, the easier it will be to pass it on. But run it as though you're going to sell it, which means clean earnings, clean balance sheet, do the extra things, have procedures in place. We try to tell people there's a lifestyle business and there's a scalable business. If you ask your business owner client, tell me the three things that are critical that you do in your business and they give you six, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a bad thing. Because if they have six or more or whatever, they are the business. They want three and everything else is run by systems, other people, assignments, delegation, et cetera. That's a saleable business because it's not dependent on you having to work 60 days or 60 hours a week. That's a saleable business. Strive to get to that point. Now you have a successful enterprise. So, Jim, you practice in Ohio. What states do you practice in besides Ohio? Ohio, but we have a lot of clients in, in Florida, as you imagine, and we have some in Illinois, Michigan, and Pennsylvania as well. So, if someone if someone wanted to get get in touch with you to pick your brain or hire you, how would they get? How would they do that? They could send me an email. They could give me a call. A lot of what we talked about today, the kinds of things we deal with in, in many of these situations are federal law and just business. They are not necessarily tied to state law issues. And if we get involved in transaction, and we've done numerous ones all around the country, if we need local uh, attorneys, we'll hire one. I'm doing a transaction right now in Montana, but, and we, we have hired a local counsel because there are some unique things in terms of the formation of the entity that may be unique to Montana and not to Ohio. 
Okay, so you mind uh, giving them your contact information? Sure. They can get in touch with me at J Awesome. That's spelled A U S S E M. That's Apple Up Susan Sam Edward and Mary at Cabbage. Cabbage is C A V I T C H dot com. Perfect. Well, Jim, I thank you so much for being on today. This has been really informational. Thank you, Ross. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Paz, Guardian, or North Florida Financial, and opinions stated are their own. External sites and materials are provided for your convenience in locating related information and services. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees expressly disclaim any responsibility for and do not maintain, control, recommend, or endorse third-party sites organizations, products, or services, and make no representation as to the completeness, suitability, or quality thereof. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Ross is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664 Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311, 850-562-9075. Security products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Arkansas Insurance License number 16139032. California Insurance License number 0L10073. 2022-147186 expires 1124.